This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The nation's Interior Secretary Sally Jewell recently spoke about a hike she took with a group of Native American children outside Tucson, Arizona. Several elders from the Tohono Autumn Nation with me. And we took a hike with these kids in Saguaro National Park. And that's where we learned how the kids' ancestors and the desert have coexisted for thousands of years. It was a magical experience for me, for the kids, but also for the Park Service folks who witnessed uh, this exchange of information. But Jewel and our guest today say hikes like that don't happen often enough. Jewel has made diversity a priority, and the Park Service is so eager to get kids of all races outdoors that it's handing out free park passes to every fourth grader in the country. A local group has a similar mission. Jess Ward runs Denver-based City Wild, which provides outdoor experiences for underprivileged kids in the metro area. She's also a member of a national group called the Next 100 Coalition that's recommending changes to increase diversity in the park system on its 100th anniversary. And Rudy Vias leads Kids on Treks for City Wild. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you for having us. So, Rudy, why aren't more people from minority backgrounds going to the parks? I think there's a little bit of fear of not being prepared and readiness. Um, but I think a lot of us have gotten comfortable in, in society uh, just watching it on TV. Um, there's so many different channels you can experience the outdoors. Um, video games like Minecraft, kids are comfortable just putting on the air conditioner, experience it from the, their couch. Um, and they just, it, it's easier. And, uh, you know, we don't always have access from the inner cities to, to take a bus, to take a, uh, any, any kind of route to get outdoors uh, has been really a big challenge. And so when these kids go to the parks, um, what is their experience? Yeah, so I think there's a variety of experience. Usually it's um, excitement and awe in that personal level, um, a little bit of fear and that trepidation that Rudy talked about, as well as um, nervousness about how they're going to be treated, respected, um, engaged with in the parks. There's a lot of um, complex dimensions to it. Because of their their race, they feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Explain that a bit more. Yeah. So students that we work with, as well as lots of other um, folks that we come across, um, particularly folks of color and low-income, people with low-income backgrounds, um, are really not always treated well um, in parks. It's seen as not a place for them. It's not their space. And Rudy, have you experienced that when you're taking children from from inner cities into into the parks? Yes, most recently I was with a group of uh, our young people, and as soon as we came across, um, you know, people were kind of really noticing us and and calling it out. Um, but also, the, you know, the comments of folks saying, you know, I come out, I come out here to get away from these kinds of kids, and and so here we are trying to find our own place and peace and serenity in life, and and people don't want us to want to share that either with us. So coming out of that that example, there is the Next 100 Coalition. Uh, just how did that group come about and, and what is its end goal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Next 100 Coalition is a group of um, over 30 environmental, social justice, um, conservation groups, um, all with kind of a similar purpose of increasing inclusiveness in the outdoors. Um came together and decided that we would amplify our voices by creating a collaborative message that really addresses issues of connection and inclusiveness uh, with that outdoor angle because the outdoors 
has largely been an area that's been ignored in terms of inclusiveness and making sure that people have access, that all people have access. And what has the response been from, let's say, the Park Service or from the federal government? Yeah, it's been great response, um, all the way from the White House <laughs> to the Park Service to um, local entities here in Colorado. We've had really great response. Rudy, we mentioned, of course, the Denver program, City Wild, that you work with. Let's say you're out with these kids in a forest someplace. Describe for me you know, what they truly do experience, what they see, what they hear, how they react to this different environment once they're there. You know, it's a lot different taking them out of their homes where they're taught to spray for bugs, kill the kill that big, ugly spider, mm-hmm. um, you know, swat, swat the bug that just flew in mm-hmm. and then go into this environment where you have to respect all life and understand that those things also have a life and a place in this world. And so when we start to talk about that and we really start to look deeper, then we start to look at the life that we all want to appreciate even within ourselves. So here we come in from a community like the East side park Hill. Um, and they're not even safe enough to walk down the street, a block, two blocks. So how can they even get outdoors when they're faced by so much violence around them? And here we take them into another foreign space where they've only been told that, uh, murderers and, uh, stuff like that. You know, the crazy man in the cabin is out mm. there and, and from Hollywood movies, you know, a lot of things conjured up. And now we're asking them to look at life, find serenity and peace in a place that they've never experienced peace. No one's ever talked to them about peace and serenity and meditation. And here we put them in a whole new environment where these things all come to a life and so they can connect. So, so just give me an example of someone uh, in the program who's been changed, a success story, if you will. Mm-hmm. There are so many. It's uh, pretty incredible, pretty yeah. amazing. So um, in particular, um, there's a young woman who's um, who works with us. She's on our staff. Her name is Markeisha, and she's um, – She's a student staff member. We hire youth to work with us and become junior guides and um, take on leadership roles over the time that they're with us. And um, even in just the short time that I've been with City Wild and that I've gotten to know her, um, she has risen through her experiences in the outdoors to a leader. She's a rafting guide. Um, She's really learned to take pride in herself and pride in um, her community. And, yeah, it's pretty incredible to see. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Jess Ward and Rudy Valles of City Wild, a Denver group that provides wilderness experiences for kids. Uh, Jess Ward is also part of a national coalition that's pushing for diversity in the national parks. Uh, let's talk about this national group, the uh, Next 100 Coalition. Uh, it's released recommendations to increase diversity in, in the park. Can you give brief examples of, of maybe two of those recommendations? Yeah. So one of the biggest pieces is that the National Park Service and public lands in general being really inclusive um, through representation. So shifting the interpretive materials in the park to really reflect the stories of all people. Um, so making sure that uh, that there's attention paid to indigenous populations when you're going to national parks and you're seeing those um, beautiful like plaques and things that describe the space, making sure that those are truly representative and really accurate is one example um, another recommendation, other recommendations are around things like access to permits, um, ensuring that there's collaboration across um, different governmental agencies so that there's clarity about how 
um, inclusiveness works and cultural competency in the parks. And I was also seeing that one of the recommendations was urging the Park Service to consider what it calls the cultural implications of park ranger vehicles mm. and, and uniforms. Mm. What does that mean? Yeah, so there's across the board, there are there's a strong need in our culture, in our society, to consider cultural implications of lots of our systems. Um, and so that's just one example, but there's a I think this invites us, the Next 100 Coalition invites us all to really look at cultural implications of how do we present ourselves, how do we um, make sure that parks feel safe and inclusive for all groups. And maybe that means looking at things that have been institutionalized for a long time because they make people feel potentially uncomfortable or unsafe or nervous um, about so, Rudy, I guess for me, seeing seeing a ranger uniform would mean safety, that, that I'm with someone who knows. But is that a different feeling in a sense? Well, for folks that never have had um, outdoors experience and, and interaction with those folks, it could be confusing. Mm. Uh, and so um, it, we don't know. And so it looks very different from the inner city. And so when we don't, we're not oriented and we don't have those relationships, uh, we Many of the young people get fearful from from that interaction, and I guess in that sense, for for safety reasons, shouldn't these these uh, rangers be readily identifiable? I guess so. Is it just having the conversation, or actually coming up with with a new uniform or something yeah. like that? Yeah, the big thing is looking at. So, park rangers have largely had to take on the role of law enforcement within parks, and really, maybe what we need are more people who are more volunteers, more staff who can provide that, that kind of friendly um, interaction and interpretation. So maybe it's increasing that as one example um, is one of the biggest suggestions. And, and, and people that look similar to the people exactly. that are coming into yeah. the park. So ensuring that the, that that workforce is reflective of the face of America. And, and I've noted that it's, it's pretty difficult to get a job as a park ranger. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they don't leave very often once they're in this position. So are, are there ideas that, you're, that the organization is coming up with to say we need to be more inclusive in, in mm-hmm. hiring practices and, and being more diverse? Yeah, we're actually on the local level um, through a process that um, a grant process that we're working on through Great Outdoors Colorado um, called GoCo Inspire. We're actually brainstorming ideas right now for mm-hmm. junior ranger opportunities um, for youth to get kind of internships, official internships into um, low-income youth and youth of color um, internships in the local park service so that they can grow into those positions and, and increase that diversity. The coalition also calls for establishing some historic sites that reflect different cultures in the U.S. and hiring some very top-level people in government to coordinate all of these diversity efforts. Isn't this a big commitment of money and and really calls for for warning about bureaucracy? Mm, yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> bureaucracy is always a challenge, um, but it's important too. So if we have all of these other systems and we're willing to spend money on the those bureaucratic um, systems – Uh, this is a place that it's very worth spending funds on so that the um, national parks and public lands reflect the people of the country. Um, But yeah, those historic sites, there's lots of effort around um, the Tubman, uh, Harriet Tubman site, the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church in in, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. There's lots of effort to bring attention to these sites as protected national monuments. Rudy, I want to talk about 
your ideal of the park if some of these recommendations come through. Give me an example of what it would be bringing kids to a park that would be more inclusive and have a diversity aspect to it. I think a lot of uh, one part would would share sharing the Native American culture. Mm. You know, part of these national parks is our own national history within them. Um, Here we study uh, many times in our history and our culture of 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 people's or or origin stories Mm. and how they come about. But here, our Native American community, many of their origin stories come from here, and how to interact with that that environment, what these things mean. Um, and and getting in touch with that, and so we'd really like to work with those indigenous people that are really connected in those communities um, to to learn about that history. Just like in the east, and we're, we're talking about Birmingham, Alabama, and the history within those areas, we want to go to these places so that they they're more meaningful to us and how they connect to our own history and in our own place in this country. And just briefly, what are the next steps here? What are we looking at in, in the near future for, for this organization and, and your organization? Yeah. So um, in terms of the Next 100 Coalition, we have presidential policy recommendations um, that we're pushing forward and looking for um, support on. And we've already had a lot of great support in that. So um, working on that as well as getting the word out to folks and get, getting some support around um, this on both local levels as well as national levels. Um, in terms of City Wild and our organization, we're um, just looking to continue to increase the access to the outdoors for youth. Um, and we're working on um, increasing our workforce development program so that young people are prepared for jobs in the outdoors, um, and as well as increasing program opportunities. Well, thanks so much to both of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Jess Ward is executive director of City Wild, a Denver program that provides wilderness experiences for disadvantaged youth. Rudy Vias is on the City Wild staff. Still to come, using poetry to connect prison inmates to their community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Just because I've been taken out of the real world doesn't mean I can't be somebody. Those are words from an inmate. He participated in a program in a D.C. jail called On the Same Page United. And the idea is to, quote, use poetry to connect inmates and their communities. The project won an Aspen Ideas Award at last year's Aspen Ideas Festival. It has since expanded to Colorado. I'm joined by the program's co-director, Kelly Taylor, who is in D.C., and Karen Lazay, who has been coordinating the effort in Colorado. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kelly, what do you mean when you say the goal of On the Same Page United is to use poetry to connect inmates with their communities? Well, I think what the project does is it, it really recognizes our interconnection. Um, when one part of our community experiences healing, all of us benefit. So, you know, it's uh, more than 600,000 prisoners will be coming back uh, to the community each year. And unfortunately, they return home a lot of times disconnected and alienated. But through poetry and the connections that we can create uh, by sharing our stories through poetry, they can they can feel welcome. They can feel like they're a part of something. And when you feel a part of something, you know, you're you're more invested in it. So, So briefly explain how this program works. Sure. Um, we take uh, – the, the way that it works in D.C. is that we take poems by inmates that we've been working with here in Washington, D.C., who have been transferred to federal prisons across the country. We take those out to community gatherings where volunteers come, and it's it's incredibly simple. All they do is sit down, read the poems, and um, 
connect with the poems, like, you know, just a particular line that resonates with them. It's not about correcting somebody's grammar or anything like that. It's more about uh, connecting with the experience of the writer. So let's say somebody might write in a poem about having lost a friend to gun violence. Um, Maybe I, as a volunteer, haven't experienced losing somebody to gun violence, but I know what loss feels like. And I can... can, um, connect with that and and write a note back to that poet saying, oh my gosh, you know, something similar happened to me and and this is how I felt and, and you, what you said I, really resonates with me. And it just really validates somebody's emotions. So, so why poetry? Why not just let them write however they'd like to write? Well, I'll tell you, we, we say poetry. The reason that we call it poetry is because poetry has no rules. And I, I think see. a lot of these people have, have grown up thinking that writing has a lot of rules. And so, you know, sometimes our quote-unquote poem is just somebody free writing or somebody writing an essay. But it's just – it's a way to sort of take the um, the rules away and let them feel free to express themselves. And you used the $25,000 in prize money from the Aspen Ideas Award last year to expand this idea to seven other communities, including here in Colorado. But I understand the seed – for this program was planted more than a decade ago while running a book club program for juveniles in a D.C. jail. How did On the Same Page United evolve out of that? Sure. Um, Yes, you're right. We've been running a book club for juveniles charged and incarcerated as adults at the D.C. jail since 2002. And at the end of every session, I mean, there was, of course, the whole piece of introducing them to literature. Um, um, but, But at the end of each session, we would do a writing prompt. And um, just as a way to get them to loosen up and and to sort of build community among the guys. And when we'd take those poems back, um, we would write our comments on them. You know, they were just all over the board in terms of ability, um, but all of them were just really touching in, in terms hmm. of people expressing their story. So we, my, my um, partner Tara Liebert and I would just write comments back. And it just... It was mind-blowing how much it meant to them to, to have their voices heard. And so Tara actually had the idea that, you know, we, we need to take these poems out and get more people to hear these voices. And just to be clear, the, the poems that these, these inmates write on paper, that's, the, that's where people, you know, comment. And then those are given back to the, to the prisoners. Exactly. Yeah, that's where we came up with the, the clever on the same page. <laughs> uh, Karen, you say you followed the work Kelly and her colleagues have done for years through their Free Minds book club and writing workshop. Uh, and of course, that's the same nonprofit that runs on the same page United. Briefly, what drew you to their work here in Colorado? What drew me to their work is that, um, first of all, obviously, they were doing something that I was I was imagining for Colorado, and they were doing it very well. And when I reached out to Tara, this is probably six years ago, she was so generous and responsive in explaining what they did. And I I saw how it was going to be able to be um, paralleled um, with the population in the Colorado prisons that um, they just kind of mentored me, encouraged me, and understood how hard it is to get started on something like this. And on the same page, United launched in Colorado in January, which had an event hosted here in Denver. Uh, Tell me about that initial event. The initial event, once again, um, with their amazing sort of style and generosity, um, on the same page, United was, um, it was created in Denver with a lot of guidelines and support Mm -hmm. and a lot of creativity um, required on my end because I was basically creating a community of volunteers who didn't know anything about the program. 
Um, and with anything, you know, I have to laugh. We started out with some family members and some of my yoga class and all kinds of different people who are curious, and it has just exploded. Will you read an excerpt uh, from one of the poems shared by a Colorado inmate for me, Karen? Of course. This is a very, very brief stanza by um, Rick Anderson. It is a poem called Headstones, and it's kind of a uh, historical-themed poem. Wherever an old headstone stands, a man's story remains untold. Ghosts reach out, they speak to me in voices lost and cold. Whispers sighing on the wind, ever-present, I can hear their plea— They ask for little, just this much. Someone please remember me. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Kelly Taylor. She co-directs a national program called On the Same Page United. It uses poetry as a way for inmates and their communities to communicate. The program expanded to Colorado earlier this year. And uh, and we also are speaking with Karen, who who is also with me, and she helps coordinate the effort in, in Colorado. I think the question that, I, that I, I'm having is some of these inmates, especially here in Colorado, have done pretty awful things. Um, how do you balance that with the program in terms of getting in the community? Let, let's start with Kelly. Um, well, I, there's there's no doubt about that. And, and it's something that we deal with every time we have an event in the community because obviously, um, as you say, some of them have done horrible things. But the reality is most of them will be returning to our communities and um, personally – I, I really believe in the idea that, that we've all made mistakes, obviously some with with worse results than others, worse consequences than others. But I think that we need to look forward. And, um, you know, as I said, a lot of these writers are coming home. And if we just continue to shun them, um, you know, there there are studies shown that, that when somebody feels shunned, they re- reject the person that's rejecting them. So I just think that the negative results of this are, are um isn't anything that any of us want. Um, so I think it's in all of our best interests to work to foster positive connections um, and, and to help help them rejoin the community in a positive way. Karen Laze, what, what do you have to say about that? Um, I would echo the same sentiment, and I would add that one of the things that I focus on very heavily when I um, welcome the volunteers who are about to look at the poetry is um, I never would... Um, you know, ignore the heinous events, the bad choices that that happened because of these people that led to their incarceration. But um, you appeal to the humanity, and you know, there's it's twofold for people who are very resistant to the idea of second chances and forgiveness and redemption. You can appeal to wasted tax dollars incarcerating people endlessly. But on the other hand, I would say that. Um, every person whose poetry I've read or I've interacted with in my my program in the prisons has changed. Um, it's a rare person um, who writes this poetry who doesn't see life from with a big perspective, looking back, um, having looked at their life, what they've missed, what they've lost, the harm they've done, and moved on, as Kelly said. So um, this is a way of fixing the world moving forward and repairing it. And another uh, thing, Kelly, in D.C., you work with incarcerated juveniles in jails. But, Karen, uh, you've launched the project at Sterling Correctional Facility. That's a level four state prison in northeast Colorado. So there is there some 
I guess, things you have to do differently because you're dealing with such a different location? Oh, I love that question because indeed there is, but it's a good problem or a good challenge. Um, where I think the poetry that's coming out of the D.C. jails reflects the youth of some of the poets. Um, I have an interesting conundrum in that the poets coming out of Sterling um, are very, very sophisticated, and their poetry is so complex that um, while they adore the responses and um, the warm warm, um, comments, good job, keep writing, you've touched me, they are craving um, a higher level of um, direction and criticism, which um, is a whole new wonderful problem to develop because um, the, the volunteers may not, may not even be ready for that. So we're all discovering this together, but certainly the poetry, the poetry is more like Wordsworth, I would say, than maybe, um, you know, basic... Uh, I'm in prison and I hate those concrete walls. And I understand there were some difficult security measures to also work with as well. Yes, I am very um, compliant when it comes to jumping through bureaucratic hoops. I will do whatever it takes. And I, I did that. And um, I think that it's this program is totally win-win. The Sterling administration loves it. They promote it and support it. Um, and the Denver community has embraced it. So it's just a, it's just a positive program. Some experts are skeptical that literacy and arts correctional programs can effectively reduce recidivism, especially if the inmates choose to participate in the program on their own, like in this program. Kelly, what evidence do you have that programs like On the Same Page United can work? Well, I I do think there's – I don't have it at my fingertips, but there is evidence that um, inmates who do participate in any kind of educational programming show lower rates of recidivism. Um, the, the sort of evidence that I like to quote is more the personal anecdotes mm. uh, that we've seen firsthand. Um, I, if I could just share one example, there's sure. a young man that we've – that we've worked with named Carlos, who spent six years incarcerated in a federal prison. The last two of those years he spent in solitary confinement. And I think if you talk to anybody who's been through solitary, the likelihood they're going to be able to come out directly from that and be productive is is pretty slim. But thankfully, he he was reading books on his own and also participating in our program. And he told us that, that every day that he got feedback, it reminded him that he was part of a larger community of people who cared. And he's now he's home. He's working full time and going to college um, with a. And I realize this is just one story, but it's I think it's impressive. He's got a three point seven five grade point average, and his goal is to work with youth because he wants youth who are in his shoes uh, to know to know what he's learned that that he you can be welcome. So through through receiving the feedback, he said he actually said to me, you know. I felt welcome finally, and in return, I began to welcome others. Um, but it made me feel part of the community that I previously felt abandoned me and others like me. So I think really what it does is allow them to see themselves in an entirely new way that opens up the possibility for change. And Karen, Karen you say by next fall, you hope to invite the women at the La Vida Correctional Facility in Pueblo to participate. As, as you expand the program in Colorado, one goal you've laid out is to improve the outreach efforts on the volunteer aspect as well. How do you think you can do better in that aspect? Um, my challenge would be, um, as I said, things start small. Um, I would like to make sure that more people of color in the community are invited in. Um, expand the volunteer base. 
And that's a La Vista Correctional Facility. I apologize. Yes. I said La Vida. That's okay. And, and finally, as you expand this this program, Karen, um, what do you say to new volunteers that are like, I, I have no idea what this is. This is a little bit nerve-wracking for me. How do you put them at ease that this is something that you feel has a benefit? The first few minutes um, when we gather together at a – it's actually at a very uh, cozy tea house in Denver, um, and everybody is very comfortable. They're at little tables, and I haven't passed out the poetry yet. I usually begin with a story, not unlike what Kelly just shared, about someone I know who's in who's in a program um, who is um, very, very excited and positive and feels kind of a sense of not being forgotten, a sense of humanity, because of a simple poem that's being shared in the outside world. Thanks to the both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Kelly Taylor co-directs On the Same Page United, a national project that uses poetry to connect inmates to their communities. After winning an inaugural Aspen Ideas Award at last year's Aspen Ideas Festival, it expanded to Colorado. And Karen Lizay coordinates the efforts in Colorado. Just ahead, Colorado women who've embraced the retro pinup model culture. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When you hear the words pinup girl, you most likely think back to the 40s and 50s. Images of voluptuous women hanging in soldiers' lockers, pinned up on photos, or painted on the sides of planes. Well, pinups aren't just a thing of the past. Longmont filmmaker Kathleen Ryan documents a growing subculture among women in her new film, Pinup the Movie. Kalia Motley of Fort Collins is featured in the film, and they both join me now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Kalia, the film captures a moment in your life when you were big into pinup culture. You've since focused more on burlesque, uh, but introduce us to this community of women. Well, I'd say that we—I wouldn't say it's exclusively women. I'll start. I'll start there. I mean, it is a great part women. Obviously, we're talking about this traditional voluptuous body of a woman sort of theme here, but. I would say in Colorado, especially, we do have a very strong hold in the pinup community, which is our individuals who like to recreate this beautiful feminine image and feeling of style and lifestyle. A lot of the time, there's usually pinup models try to bring in the vintage feeling to the rest of their lives. And we do it also to empower other individuals, women, men, you know, just bring a little bit of nostalgia up front but in a in a new way. So so is this going full on vintage with with the hair and the makeup and the and the clothing? We do all of the things. Even, <laughs> you know, the stuff you may not even see. The undergarments are probably going to be, you know, going to suck you in the way they oh, used yeah. to just to get that shape, that silhouette, that feeling to bring you into that zone. You are talking about, you know, tons of people here actually. We have quite a few makeup and hairstylists here that specialize in authentic vintage recreation of hair and makeup. And it's one of the passions that brought me into the community. I was like, oh, I should probably make this work for me since I spend so much time on it. And it's <laughs> it's a joy. And it's about taking some time kind of to savor the process, I'd say, too. So slowing down a bit in that sense? Yeah, just like I don't have to just have my five-minute makeup routines. Like, okay, I have to go someplace and I need to 
be in my pinup attire. So give me three hours. <laughs> I can attest to that because yes. when, like, when they were, she was when we shot the film and we were doing the 1940s ball and Kalia was preparing for that. Um, I was at the house, I think, the ball started at, I think, 7, and I was at your house at like 2 in the afternoon mm-hmm. or something. I mean, of course, there was driving time and things like that that we needed to account for, but a lot of it was just following that, getting ready, and that sort of ritual, which is really lovely. And that was the 1940s ball that takes yeah. place in Boulder every year. Yeah, this, yeah the, this was actually preparing for the ball that's at the Wings Over the, Ro- oh, Wings Over the Rockies Museum, which is in, but they do, t- do it twice a year. So this is the December ball. So if you're in this community, do you only post for photos, or, or does it really go deeper? Is this about getting together? with with like-minded people or or simply a beauty pageant? <laughs> I'd say I definitely think that we all, you know, come together and hang out and trade secrets and things that we like and kind of culminate something together. It's, you know, obviously photos are a big part of it, but there's a lot of charities run by pinups, so, you know, making appearances. I worked the 1940s ball a lot being in full hair and makeup pinup stuff, you know, talking to veterans and doing the whole thing. It's It's about... You know, it is a community. I mean, the photos will be there, but you going out there and kind of reaching out as this sort of symbol to people is very important. And we're in high demand, Mm -hmm. I'd say. I'll say, you know, we were just at the ball this weekend and we screened this weekend during the ball and we went out with a couple of the other ladies for breakfast after for brunch afterwards. And people they were all done. And people were commenting to them. It's like, oh, you look great. And I think that's part of it. It's that, you know, the pictures are just kind of a very small part of the community. It's the most visible part, perhaps, but it's really more about that sort of community and really, you know, kind of uh, taking care and looking different and standing out in a world where, you know, we're often in sweats and uggs. So, Kalia, when you put on your vintage clothing and makeup, you take on a different stage name. What is that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm called Bang Bang Von Lula for bang, burlesque bang and pinup. Von Lula. Mm-hmm. So, when you become Bang Bang, do you adjust your persona? Um, I've actually asked a lot of people in my life if they see a big difference when I do that, and most people. If they're not close to me, I'm known as Bang Bang most of the time. It's something that I, you know, react to pretty readily. I I think I'm pretty much myself. I probably put on more of a professional air. You know, I'm not going to try to – I'll keep myself together, you know, just, you know, be professional and, you know, just kind of keep my personal life to myself and I can be this because you don't want to break the illusion. It's like – I I see – you you can't see this, but I see you you get a little (laughs) bit more sensual there. You you, 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 (laughs) – When you become a bang bang, do you, do you do you feel that? Well, I find myself to be goofy. I, I, I mean, think bang bang's very. Goofy. I am goofy. <laughs> I have you know, I because I'm a burlesque dancer. Of course, people assume that there's this fiery sexual side of me, which is you know it is there, but I'm I'm more hilarious. I'd say. In a lot of ways. And everybody says, I'm, I'm so sweet. Bang, bang, so nice. And mm-hmm. I'm like a big mothering person also in the community. So I'm like a s- sweet, like adoptable mom. It's very <laughs> strange. I don't know. So, so how did you come up with that name? I, bang, bang is something, it just kind of, you know, I was, I was told to come up with a performer name for when I started doing burlesques, burlesque, excuse me, mm-hmm. in 2010. And I was just kind of listening to some music and mulling it over and I heard he shot me down bang bang done by Nancy Sinatra I was like oh bang bang is good and then I watched a movie where a character who was Japanese which I'm half Japanese was called bang bang and I really liked her vibe and I was like oh that'd be a good first name and I don't know any bang bangs at this time and there still aren't that many I'm one of the original bang bangs and that I've known um, and then Vaughn was a good connective to Lula which is what some people would call me in school because Kalia was too hard I guess so <laughs> bang bang Von Lula 
So, Kathleen, do, do a lot of the, the women that, that are in this community have different names when they when they get into the outfits and things? Yeah, they do. I mean, I th- it's unusual, in fact, to find women who don't have that pinup name. One of the, the gals that we feature in the film, Sydney Ralston, goes by, I mean, that's her name. She's Sydney Ralston. And she jokes in the film, who the hell is Sydney Ralston? <laughs> you know, because that's her, you know, that's her thing. But everybody else is, you know, they all have their names. We have a Delicious Ruckus. We have a Dapper Dan Doll, a Miss Rockwell DeVille. There's a, a Miss Emily who also goes by Rika Shanene. Okay. <laughs> um, there is a Miss May ham there is a ginger rose i mean and it goes on and on and on and on and on they all have these other names that they associate and i think part of it is you can keep your private life separate from this performance that you're doing and i think part of it too is it's part of that role play and that ritual it's you know you're kind of stepping into this person that you that is a part of you but is also a different side of you than maybe everyone sees every day This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Longmont filmmaker Kathleen Ryan and part-time pinup model Kalia Motley about the pinup subculture here in Colorado. Uh, How welcoming is this community? I'd say, for the most part, we have a very welcoming community. You know, there's a lot of people who want to be a part of this. There are a lot of opportunities here to do so. I mean, like anything in life, in show business and stuff like this, there can be some drama and cattiness, but that's just life. You know, it's not surprising. And you just kind of have to figure out where you best fit. And I would say generally, if there is a vibe of sort of like, you know, exclusiveness or, you know, it's it, they're not they don't do as well as those who mm-hmm. love everyone. You know, the the love in the community is the most successful area, I would say. But you've had a few bumps as an Asian American and a pinup model. Yes. <laughs> well, I am, you know, I am half Japanese. I look fairly Asian, um especially when my hair is dark, which it's not right now. Um though I've been told I look like an anime character, so what's the difference? <laughs> all these blurred lines. I I had, you know, faced a couple times I was working on a shoot that I did hair and makeup for and helped style and put a lot of time and effort in. And it was an airplane based shoot. And I appeared on a World War II plane as a part of my photos being taken that day. And I found out later that I had been removed because of my race, because somebody somewhere in some sort of higher up level of what this project was deemed it not appropriate. And it was a bummer. It was pro- It was kind of a blow. I mean, I'm from Los Angeles. There's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. Asian Americans there. I'm kind of and moving to Colorado was slightly shocking, I suppose, in that way. And I can see I understand all these angles. I understand that I'm not. But it, it did kind of, you know, hurt my feelers just a little bit. And I had to become a little bit more conscious about these things. And per- And for that project the next year, they put me in a Scottish uniform in front of a British plane because they're like, nobody will. You know, the, this is this is the safe zone because no one would know. <laughs> and I want to explore this a bit more. You know, pinup culture has deep roots in, in the World War II era, which could have been a rough seen as a rough time for women and minorities. Well, making your film, you explored this dichotomy between the culture of the 40s and 50s and the culture mm-hmm. of today. What did you discover? Well, to start with, pinup didn't start in the 1940s. You know, pinup started, it, it actually dates back to the, the, the burlesque era. We're talking about the mid-1800s. And what you would had was these performers who were doing very um, 
sort of risque things for the time. And they would be taking, you know, this is when photography has started and they would make these cards and the cards would be of them, calling cards basically to promote themselves and they would insert them into culture. And I'm working with, you know, one of the producers on the film is Maria Elena Buzek and she is a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. And she... um, is you know she did a book about this and she traces the history of the pinup and she's found that throughout it even in these very seemingly repressive times like the 1950s or 1940s when women maybe didn't have as many opportunities as they have now the pinup was still a pretty feminist creature in that women were doing things with it not in the way that the men intended or that the, some of the male artists maybe may have anticipated or the photographers may have anticipated and they were using it for themselves for very different reasons so in the sense where the, the men were of course looking at the women Ogling. but for, yeah. there yeah and, and the, <laughs> but the women of course had a, had a very different feeling and, and in the film there is there are photographs of, of everyday women in the 1940s mm-hmm. doing something being acting like a pinup in a sense and feeling that empowerment there right you know it's it's this DIY pinup movement and it was uh, something that I discovered in my last project and this is how I came across Maria's work because I was dealing with women in the 1940s, and they were all showing me pinup pictures of themselves, which I thought was really weird. And I was trying to explain it. And so, um, and this DIY pinup was actually a phenomenon during the era. And the women were taking pictures of themselves in these very sort of seductive poses, not for men, but for each other. And they were sharing them with each other. And it was a way of kind of saying, you know, we're doing something unusual, and we're kind of audacious, and we're kind of, you know, we're kind of tough. And and this was a way to recognize that. And so this is – and this again as well, you know, this sort of history that it has of this sort of feminist link where, you know, I mean the Gibson girls were pinups and the Gibson girls were advocating to vote. And if you look at some of those old Gibson girls paintings, I mean we've got one in the film where women are looking under a, micro, a magnifying glass poking men with a scalpel. I mean this is weird. And that's what's going on. And this is, and this is what the pinup has traditionally explored. Kalia, do you ever feel – or have a fear of being objectified by men looking at your photos or seeing you in, in your your outfits and things. I don't think I'm afraid of it. I mean, I'm obviously have made this choice to, you know, I'm putting myself out there. Mm-hmm. I'm at this risk anyway. You know, we have this whole issue with the rape culture, and it's like you're wearing that, so you're asking for it. It's just like it's going to be because I, I, you know, might draw on my eyebrows one day. It could be anything, not just because. I'm in vintage lingerie or strip toosing and burlesque. So I, I, you know, I haven't really faced there's I haven't been traumatized yet. <laughs> and even so, I'm pretty, you know, I'm 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 very good at keeping it professional and keeping the lines there. And I present myself very professionally. So if I think that intimidates people away from perhaps mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. sort of things happening because they're like, oh, well, she's not. You know, she's not doing it to try to – I'm not doing it to try to win or hook a man. You know, I'm doing it because I want to do it because it empowers me and possibly this person over here. And, you know, I it, I haven't really gone there. And perhaps I, I might be a little devious in that way. I'm like, I dare you. <laughs> but not really. I'm kind of a passive. But the other thing I'd say is the culture is also really protective. I mean, mm. I've seen when, you know, when someone maybe even on a Facebook page or an Instagram page, because a lot of the, the these these women have these these pages for their personas. And if someone acts out of line, they get slapped down by other people in the community who say, nah, that's not right. You don't treat, you know, you don't talk to people that way. You don't treat people that way. It's very much this culture of, you know, of making sure that under people understand that women are doing this for themselves and and the fact that you look well that's just a byproduct that's not the reason why it's happening 
your film was screened at the Women Up Film Festival mm-hmm. in L.A. Other festivals include the Albuquerque International Film Festival, the Palm Beach International Film Festival, and as well as in Paris as well. Was also yeah, we were there? at a festival called Ethnographer Film in Paris. And it's going to be shown at Comic-Con in yeah. uh, San Francisco. Right? Uh, no, San Diego. San Diego. San Diego. Sorry, San Diego. rather. San yeah. Diego. What do you think draws people to this film? Um, I think that people are just really – first off, it's – the, the the photographs are beautiful. The images are beautiful. I mean, you know, I had you have a lot of good material to work with, but I think also people kind of like seeing that sort of message of sisterhood and that message of empowerment and that message of women bonding together and supporting each other, and also the idea that you don't all have to be the same as everyone else. It's it's pushing against that Hollywood or or fashion magazine standard of what beauty is. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Kathleen Ryan is a Longmont filmmaker. Her new film, Pin Up, the movie, is scheduled to be screened at Comic-Con in uh, in San Diego. And Kalia Motley appeared in the film. She owns Blue Stocking Burley Q and produces monthly variety burlesque shows in Fort Collins. Coming up, your feedback. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Loud and Clear is a chance to hear feedback from listeners and to update you on stories we've covered. On Tuesday, my colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Denver Sheriff Patrick Furman. His department has a new policy when it comes to deputies' use of force. Their conversation touched on how rampant mental illness is among inmates at the jail. It makes me wonder if deputies truly are equipped to deal with complex mental health issues. Um, I I suppose there can be training in de-escalation But at a certain point, are you asking a law enforcement official to be doing the job of a mental health professional? Yeah, and and I think you're right. And I I think it's changing. And it's not an issue that's unique to Denver. This is something that you see across our nation with jails uh, really becoming kind of the de facto mental health institution. As we close down the formal uh, mental health institutions, there's no place left for them to go. And so the, the default to that is they get dropped off at the, at the jail. That reminded listener Deborah Marangian, who lives in Parker, of another story from NPR in 2014 about San Antonio, Texas, which gets people with mental illness into treatment rather than jail. Officers Ernest Stevens and Ned Bandusky are part of San Antonio's Mental Health Squad, a six-person plainclothes unit that answers the frequent calls where mental illness may be an issue. 2749. They've been in the car since early this morning. They're letting me ride along with them today, and we've already taken several calls. Their shift is almost over when Stephen spots a call for help on their laptop. A male individual put a blanket on fire this morning. Uh, he's arguing with them and has endangered himself and others. He's off his medications. You know this guy? Uh, I know his caseworker. I've dealt with him several times. Reporter Jenny Gold found that San Antonio's jails weren't full and that the city had saved $50 million in five years. As the Dalai Lama visited Colorado this week, we dug into Buddhism's presence here, and especially in Boulder, where it's likely that faith surveys underestimate Buddhism's influence. That is, people may embrace Buddhist philosophies, but not call themselves Buddhist. That's the case for Dave King of Denver. Quote, I often don't label myself Buddhist because the word means so many things to the people asking. It is unfortunate we can't dive deeper into these short blurbs. I'm comfortable sharing with others that I meditate, and, if they're curious, recommending Shambhala training. And finally, an update. We told you about a retired physician who's pursuing a dream later in life. Bob Biber of Evergreen loved playing piano as a kid, but his dad convinced him to become a doctor. Biber, who's 64, competed this week in a prestigious amateur piano competition. He did not advance to the quarterfinals from the first round, but he'll keep on playing. 
your feedback is music to our ears, so keep it coming. At Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook, or through our website, CPRnews.org, where you can send us a message or comment beneath articles. And that's our show for this Friday. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.